feel so that uh, Grace Church could be here and be what it is. Uh, I don't think there's been a Sunday that's gone by that he hasn't given in our church. And while we don't normally reveal the sum that a person gives, we're going to make an exception in this case this morning because it is so significant and because I think all of you will appreciate how much has been given. Um, I think also as we understand this, it will challenge all of us to do more when we learn what this person has done. And so I'm happy this morning to recognize uh, this person to give you the name of Jesus Christ. Did I surprise you a little bit? Some of you are getting a little uncomfortable, weren't you? I saw a couple of people straighten their ties getting ready to come up. <laughs> we don't often think of the Lord in terms of a giver, do we? But in fact, he is the most generous and extravagant of givers. God loves to give because that's his nature. That's the nature of grace. The Apostle Paul was so excited about this truth that he wrote for what is our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, Paul is a man who knew how to use words. He had words that he could call upon. He had words that he could create. But he said, when it comes to the giving of Jesus Christ, our God, I have no words. He says it's absolutely indescribable. Earlier in this section of 2 Corinthians, he told us exactly what the giving of Jesus Christ has been. Chapter 8 and verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And as he builds around this theme, writing by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle declares that God's giving is to be a motive for you and for me. He wants us to demonstrate the grace of God in our lives, in our giving, just as God has demonstrated His grace in giving for us. And he writes in chapter 9, verses 6 through 11, that giving really is investing with God. He says, This I say, he who invests sparingly shall also reap sparing dividends. Now we're putting that into 20th century terms from the agricultural words of the first century, but that's what he's saying. He who invests bountifully shall also bountifully receive dividends. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God didn't give that way, did he? God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, 
Notice the all-inclusiveness of those terms. You may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed, your investment for sowing, and increase the harvest or the dividends of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. The Apostle Paul is not a prosperity theology preacher. He is not saying that we ought to give so that we can get in order to satisfy our greed. But he is saying that when we learn to be generous with God and trust God with the partnership in our investment, God gives us a bountiful return. God is a giver. And this giving is rooted in the grace that is his nature. <clears throat> it would be good for us to think a little bit this morning about the meaning of grace, because it sometimes is misunderstood by people. The word grace in the New Testament is the word charis. Charis. It is from a root word that means well-being, and so the idea is, in grace, that there is a disposition with it from which proceeds kind action and goodwill. It means that one brings well-being to another. It is to ex extend favor, which is not deserved and which cannot be earned. The emphasis with the word is on the goodness of the giver. He is gracious. And of course the word is used of God in the Bible. Vine says that it refers to his unmerited kindness. That it stresses universality and freeness. Its spontaneous character and the pleasure or joy that God designs for the one who receives from him. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great Presbyterian preacher of another generation, said, Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. That is the grace of God. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor. He stooped to come into the world and to go to the cross. So that through his act of self-impoverishment, we might share in his riches. There are three primary characteristics of divine grace. It is in the first place eternal. God's grace did not begin at Calvary. In fact, in 2 Timothy 1.9, and I invite you to turn there with me, we see that God's grace extends far beyond time itself as we think into the past. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, he speaks about God and his power, and he says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, 
which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, before there was time and space and matter, before there was a universe, when there was just God and eternity, God then purposed in his grace to rescue us from our sin. God's grace is eternal. It is not something that began in time. It goes back into eternity, and it stretches forward into eternity because it is a part of the very nature of God. Furthermore, this grace is free. What that means is that it's undeserved. It is unmerited by us. We are never asked to earn God's grace Hence the false theology that says by certain sacraments we can earn the grace of God. Such a concept totally negates what the Bible says is grace. It is free. We are never asked to repay God's grace because we can't. It's impossible. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, it mentions the freeness of grace. In these words, it says, being justified, that means declared righteous before God, being justified as a gift by His grace. A gift by His grace. A gift by His grace. It is not something that we earn or deserve. It is given to us freely by God. Oh, it was very costly to God to be able to extend this grace to us. It cost him the life of his son. This grace was given to us as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the verse says. How costly it was for God to be able to extend grace to sinners. But he was willing to pay that price so that we might receive freely from God saving grace. This grace is also sovereign. This grace is eternal, it's free, and it's sovereign. God exercises this grace according to his own will. We see this as far back in the Bible as Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. The Lord says to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. God is gracious toward those he has chosen to be his own. God is not gracious to everyone, but he is gracious to those who are his by his sovereign choice and in whom he places faith to believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. God's grace is a sovereign grace, a grace that has been purposed in Christ Jesus for you and for me before the world began. God's grace is marvelous. Chuck Swindoll tells a story in his book, The Grace Awakening, that illustrates grace. He says, I vividly remember my last spanking. 
It was on my 13th birthday, as a matter of fact. Having just broken into the sophisticated ranks of the teen world, I thought I was something on a stick. <laughs> I like that phrase. My father wasn't nearly as impressed as I was with my great importance and newfound independence. I was lying on my bed. He was outside the window on a muggy October afternoon in Houston, weeding the garden. He said, Charles, come out and help me weed the garden. I said something like, no, it's my birthday, remember? My tone was sassy, and my deliberate lack of respect was eloquent. I knew better than to disobey my dad, but after all, I was the ripe old age of 13 now. He set a new 100-meter record that, right, that autumn afternoon. He was in the house and all over me like white on rice, <laughs> spanking me all the way out to the garden. As I recall, I weeded until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. <laughs> that same night, he took me out to a surprise dinner. He gave me what I deserved earlier. Later, he gave me what I did not deserve. The birthday dinner was grace. He condescended in favor upon this rebellious young man. That evening, I enjoyed what a proper theologian named Benjamin Warfield called free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. I enjoyed grace. Great illustration, isn't it? God in his mercy has not given us what we deserve. What we deserve has been laid upon Christ. And in his grace, he has given us what we did not deserve because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Marvelous illustrations of grace in the Bible. One of my favorites is back in 2 Kings chapter 5, in the story of Naaman. Naaman the Syrian, a man who was very important in his country, the General Schwarzkopf of his day, a hero, but a man who was ill with leprosy, an incurable disease in those days, not only disfiguring, but fatal. It just so happened in the providence of God that a little girl from Israel had been taken captive by some terrorists of Syria and taken back to their land. And she was given as a slave to this great general. And she made the comment one day in passing, Oh, it's too bad you don't know about the prophet who's over in Israel. You would surely be healed. Well, that comment created a lot of curiosity in Naaman. And uh, he went to the king and said, I need to go to Israel. And so the king said, I'll give you a letter. He took off for Israel, went to the king of Israel and said, I need to find this prophet who's able to cure me of my leprosy. Well, the king of Israel was not a great man of faith. And he figured this was some kind of a plot by the Syrians to undermine him to cause some issue to arise so that the Syrians could attack. He was in despair. But somehow Elisha heard about all of this, and he sent a note to the king and said, Don't worry, don't worry, send him down. And so Naaman arrived at Elisha's house. He knocked on the door, explained his problem, and Elisha said, Go down to the river Jordan and dip yourself seven times. That particular part of the story caused uh, one preacher that I heard about 
to name his sermon on this text, Seven Ducks in Muddy Water. <laughs> well, he was talking about Naaman, who had to dip himself seven times in the muddy Jordan. Naaman absolutely refused. His pride would not allow him to do something like that. And he went away storming mad, but his servants came to him and said, Hey, I mean, what can this hurt? He said, Look, you know, there are rivers over in Syria that are cleaner than this Jordan. They said, If this will work, why don't you do it? So finally he relented and humbled himself and went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself seven times, and when he came up that seventh time, his flesh was clean and whole. God had healed him. Now was there something in Naaman that caused God to say, Oh my, there is a wonderful Syrian general. And he deserves my cleansing from this disease. Is that what he said? No. God didn't say that about Naaman. Naaman was a sinner. He was a leper. He was condemned. But God in his grace provided for Naaman to learn how he might be made whole. And when Naaman responded in faith and humility, finally, he was made whole. And Naaman not only went away a healed leper, he went away a believer in the true God of Israel. The grace of God. Some of you have heard of Lee Atwater, who was chairman of the Republican Party. He died just a couple of weeks ago of a brain tumor. By his own admission, Lee Atwater was not a nice man through his life. He rose very quickly through the ranks of political power in the Republican Party. He was chairman, as you may recall, of the election committee for President Bush. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to see that George Bush was elected President of the United States. Regarding Michael Dukakis, the Democratic candidate, Atwater said that he would strip the bark off the little so-and-so during the 1988 uh, presidential campaign. Well, I think history shows that he did. He also said that he did not care what people said about him as long as he got the results that he wanted. He was a man who believed that the ends justify whatever the means might be, and he didn't care whose reputation or feelings were involved. He didn't care if he lied. He didn't care if he distorted. He wanted the end result and made a lot of enemies. And then at 40 years of age, he was struck with a brain tumor. He says, I was never a religious man. If you asked me, I would have said I was a Christian, but I didn't go to church and can't pretend that I relied on my faith for much of anything. But he went on to say that having the brain tumor diagnosed, he began to reevaluate things. And as a result of that, and some ministry by Charles Colson and others, Lee Atwater placed his faith in Jesus Christ within the last year. And he began to read the Bible voraciously. <clears throat> and he began to do things he would never have dreamed of before. 
He sent letters of apology to Dukakis and to others that he had mistreated and defamed. Now, the press does not understand this. One editor was writing about it in one of the local newspapers this week and said, maybe it was all done in sincerity. Maybe it was just good timing. His death brings up a dilemma I've struggled with for years, says this editor. Excuse me. How necessary is it to live your life within the boundaries of civility if a little last-minute penitence can negate it all. Put it more bluntly, is God really this big of a pushover? Well, the editor exposes his skepticism, which is not always unhealthy for an editor, but he also exposes his woeful ignorance of God. God is not ever a pushover. But God is gracious. And God is willing to forgive anyone who comes to him with repentance and faith. And we can be grateful that Lee Atwater came to that point in the last year of his life. What an illustration of grace we see in this man. Another man that you have heard of and who has been called by some of us, even, Pineapple Face. No, it's not a Dick Tracy cartoon character. It's Manuel Noriega of Panama. I should say lately of Panama. Ruthless little dictator. A killer. Stole from his own people. He dealt in drugs as low as a scum of the earth. But as you know the story, he was removed from power by a little action on the part of the United States and was taken to Miami where he sits today in prison awaiting his trial. Back in January of 1990, just a little over a year ago, there was a man who mailed a New Testament to Noriega. He had nothing to do but to read, and so he began to read it. And they asked for, uh, these people who mailed the New Testament, asked for a time to visit with him. And he consented. It took months for the red tape to be worked through, but finally uh, it was agreed that a certain, on a certain day they would uh, come to visit with Manuel Noriega. It was the 15th of May, not even a year ago. They came to his cell and sat down with him, and over the course of three hours, explained to him more fully the New Testament he had been reading. And Noriega, with tears streaming down his cheeks, repented. And his own words are that he placed his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Here is what he wrote in his Bible in Spanish. I received Jesus Christ as my Savior the 15th day of May of 1990 at 11 a.m. And this same group went then to visit his immediate family, and his wife and two daughters also 
reportedly have received Jesus Christ as Savior. Is God a pushover? Not in the least, my friend. Then how can God forgive a person like Noriega? The same way that he can forgive you and me. Noriega's sin was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that he should be let out of prison and go free and testify? No, it means that he's going to have to pay for the crimes that he's committed against society. However, he's found guilty. But it does mean that before God's court, Noriega is forgiven by the grace of God. I hope that you know the meaning of that forgiveness that God gives freely and sovereignly. How do we respond to such grace as this? How do we respond to such unselfishness on the part of God? Well, obviously we can't pay God back for His grace. We can't now do something that is going to say, well, now here's what I'm doing for you because of that, and it kind of pays you back, God. It doesn't work that way. But what the Apostle says in our text is that because of God's grace that cannot even be described in human words, that we ought to be gracious in our giving. The grasp of God's grace in our lives should cause us to let go of what we tend to hang on to in our selfishness. The story is told about two travelers. One was greedy and the other was envious. As they were traveling along, by and by an angel came and walked with them for a time. And then it was time for the angel to leave. And so before he left, he said, I want to do something for you. And he said to these two, greedy and envious, I will grant the wish of the first of you to make a wish. And then I will give a double portion of that wish to the second one. Well, you can imagine the dilemma that it put those two in. Greedy didn't want to go first because he wanted the double portion. Envy didn't want to make the first wish because he would envy the double portion that Greedy got. And so there ensued an argument, followed by a struggle and then a fight until one had the other by the neck almost dead, and then he relented. And he said, all right, all right, I'll make my wish. And he said, I wish myself blind in one eye. His wish was granted, and the other got the double portion. (laughs) Envy and greed are totally counterproductive. When you and I grasp and hang on to what God has put into our hands in the first place, it only ultimately corrupts us and destroys us. How much better that we should recognize that the God we worship is a God who gives. 
that we allow that grace to be very real in our lives as well. That because he is a giver, we're givers. Let's pray. We sing sometimes the hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. All to him I freely give. But before we ever sang that song, Jesus, as it were, sang to us, All to you I surrender. All for you I freely give. Because of that great grace, you and I can release what we hang on to and invest with God our time, our talents, and our treasures. May that be the spirit and the attitude of our hearts. Talk to the Lord about it right where you're seated. Tell Him your response. Tell him your response to his indescribable grace. Let's stand together, please, with our heads bowed and sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Father, we recognize you as the greatest giver in our church. And how much you have given, we can never fully define how gracious you are. And so now may your grace overwhelm us and free us from sinful covetousness and greed and envy and enable us likewise to be gracious in giving to others. In Jesus' name, amen.